The Pier Falls. 23rd of July, 1970, the end of the afternoon. A cool breeze off the channel, a mackerel sky overhead, and far out, a column of sunlight falling onto a trawler, as if God had picked it out for some kind of blessing. The upper stories of the Regency buildings along the front sit above a gaudy rank of coffee houses and fish bars and knick-knack shops with striped awnings selling 99s and dried seahorses in cellophane envelopes. The names of the hotels are writ large in neon and weatherproof paint. The Excelsior, the Camden, the Royal. The word Royal is missing an O. Gulls wheel and cry. Two thousand people saunter along the prom, some carrying towels and tizer to the beach, others pausing to put a shilling in the telescope or to lean against a balustrade whose pistachio-green paint has blistered and popped in a hundred years of salt air. A girl picks up a wafer from a dropped ice cream and lifts into the wind. On the beach, a portly woman hammers a windbreak into the sand with the heel of a shoe, while a pair of freckled twins build a fort from sand and lolly sticks. The deck chairman is collecting rentals, doling out change from a leather pouch at his hip. No deeper than your waist, shouts her father. Susan, no deeper than your waist. The air on the pier is thick with the smell of engine grease and fried onions spooned onto hot dogs. The boys from the ticket booth ride shotgun on the rubber rims of the bumper cars, the contacts scraping and sparking on the live chicken wire nailed to the roof above their heads. A barrel organ plays Strauss waltzes on repeat. Nine minutes to five. Ozone and sea sparkle and carnival licence. This is how it begins. A rivet fails. One of eight which should clamp the joint between two weight-bearing girders on the western side of the pier. Five have sheared already in heavy January seas earlier this year. There is a faint tremor underfoot, as if a suitcase or a stepladder has been dropped somewhere nearby. No one takes any notice. There are now two rivets holding the tonnage previously supported by eight. In the aquarium, by the marina, the dolphins turn in their blue prison. Twelve and a half minutes later, another rivet snaps, and a section of the pier drops by half an inch with a soft thump. People turn to look at one another. The same momentary reduction in weight you feel when a lift starts descending. But the pier is always moving in the wind and the tide, so everyone returns to eating their pineapple fritters and rolling coins into the fruit machines. The noise, when it comes, is like the noise of a redwood being felled. Wood and metal bending and splitting under pressure. Everyone looks at their feet, feeling the hum and judder of the struts. The noise stops, and there is a moment of silence, as if the sea itself were holding its breath. Then, with a peal of biblical thunder, a wide semicircle of walkway is hauled seaward by the weight of the broken girders underneath. A woman and three children standing at the rail drop instantly. Six more people are poured, scrabbling, down the half-crater of shattered wood into the sea. If you look through the black haystack of planks and beams, you can see three figures thrashing in the dark water, a fourth floating face down and a fifth folded over a weed-covered beam. The rest are trapped underwater somewhere. 
Up on the pier, a man hurls five life belts, one after the other, into the sea. Other holidaymakers drop their possessions as they flee so that the walkway is littered with bottles and sunglasses and cardboard cones of chips. A cocker spaniel runs in circles, trailing a blue lead. Two men are helping an elderly lady to her feet when yet more decking gives way beneath them. The shorter, bearded man grabs the claw foot of an iron bench and hangs onto the woman till a teenage boy is able to lean down and help them both up but the taller man with the braces and the rolled-up shirt sleeves slides down the buckled planking till he is brought to a halt by a spike of broken rail which enters the small of his back. He wriggles like a fish. No one will go down to help him. The slope is too steep, the structure too untrustworthy. A father turns his daughter's face away. The men running the big wheel are trying to empty each gondola in turn, but those stuck at the top of the ride are screaming and those lower down are unwilling to wait their turn and jump out, some twisting ankles, one breaking a wrist. On the beach, everyone stands and stares at the hole punched into the familiar view. The coloured lights still flash. Faintly, they can hear the emperor waltz. Five men tear off shoes and shirts and trousers and run into the surf. Mark, thank you so much for reading from the title story from your debut story collection. I'm going to come back to that story a little bit later, let some of those images sink in. But I wanted to ask, first of all, as I said, this is your debut story collection and many people will know you as an author of novels and children's fiction. Have you always written short stories or is this something that's only happened recently? I have always tried to write short stories. I was driven initially by... The conviction that, like poetry, like plays, they're just a combination of of words. And if you can get the words right, they're going to work. They didn't seem to me to be fundamentally different from from a novel, for example. Mm. And it took me a long time to work out why it wasn't working. And I think that was partly due to the the utter superficiality of my motives (laughs) and partly because... I was not enjoying the great majority of short stories I was reading. Even the ones which were quite obviously small masterpieces. Most of what I was reading were stories in the Joyce Mansfield Chekhov Carver tradition. Quite minimal, quite melancholic, often about absences and things not happening. Stories which ended on a dying fall, stories which were often not quite stories, but part of some larger narrative that was happening elsewhere. And I think I found those unsatisfying. And it took me a long time to stumble on the right kind of stories which showed me a way around that impasse. Two in particular very important for me. One was the title story of Wells Towers, Everything Ravaged, Everything Burned, Mm. which I recommend to everyone to read, rather than me telling you the story now. (laughs) But it's about about two middle-aged Vikings, and it's as funny as it sounds, but unexpectedly sad and moving. It has a voracious scope, It has 
horror, it has humour, it has pathos. There's no sense of it being a short story. It's a story which is quite compacted. The other story which really affected and influenced me turned out not to be a story at all. But it was so compelling, I assumed it was fiction when I first read it. It was by Joanne Beard, and it was called Verna. It's about a young man in his New York apartment which catches fire, and he has to save himself by jumping from the window of his building in through the window of an adjacent building. It's absolutely thrilling. It was the first essay in Best American Essays, whichever date David Foster Wallace edited the collection. And despite the fact that there was essay on the cover and it was a book of essays, I assumed it had to be made up. Because strangely enough, there was so much vivid detail there, I believed it couldn't be real life. Mm. And yet it was. And reading that made me think, if a short story is not as exciting as real life, why don't you just go out the front door and find some real life? Why don't you read the newspaper? Why don't you talk to your family? There's got to be a reason for sitting down in a chair and writing and then reading a short story. It's, it's got, to be, got to be as exciting as life. That's really interesting. I, I've read the Wells Tower collection that you mentioned. And as you say, it contains a, a lot of humour. It's a really funny collection, but also a lot of horror, a lot of darkness there. And I think as well in your collection, The Pier Falls, people might be surprised by the the darker tinge to your writing. Was that something that the short form gave you a chance to express more than a sort of a larger novel? I think it comes from two places. One, as it were, honourable, one less honourable. The honourable one is that without death, you don't get fiction, basically. Without suffering, without finitude, stories just don't happen. Nothing is at stake. Nothing really matters. It's the fact that life comes to an end that gives it piquancy and voltage. And for me, to make a story work, you need that darkness. You need bad things to happen, especially if within that short format, you're going to get a whole story down. You're going to get a whole arc. You end up killing quite a few people. <laughs> the less honourable motive is that I am known to quite a lot of readers as, to quote someone once said this to me, the nice man who wrote that book about the boy and the dog. And I will be forever grateful to that novel. But there is a little bit of me which would rather not be known as that nice man <laughs> who wrote the novel about the boy and the dog. So there is a perverse joy in writing stories which have some quite unpleasant content. Yeah. I mean, I think as well, when I read short stories, often I can feel as though I'm, I'm watching a writer kind of flexing their, their writing muscles. They're trying things out. They will experiment with form and content and style. And I just wondered whether, again, with this collection, it gave you a chance to break away from, you said, maybe a book that has sort of one that everyone knows you for, but also the kind of novels that you write, where maybe with that short form, you've got a chance with that blank page to, to go somewhere very different. That's absolutely true, but that is completely contrary to what a lot of writers say. And I think that grows out of that minimal, melancholy, chekhov Carverest tradition. Mm. You'll hear a lot of writers say a short story is a very, very fine, fine um, 
format. You have to get everything absolutely right. It's so easy to write a bad short story. Mm. It's like a violin solo. You can hear you can hear everything, and they give the impression it's very fragile, um, and very frail, and very delicate. For me, it's completely the opposite. Partly because it's easier to throw away a failed short story. You can take more risks. Right. It's a lot more painful to throw away a novel that doesn't work. Yeah. I must have written 30 short stories that I've thrown away. And if the stories in the collection are good, it's partly as a result of having thrown so many others away. And indeed, in the, well, to quote Claire Alexander, my agent, she put it very well. She said, Mark... You write novels in which not very much happens and short stories in which everything happens. <laughs> it enables me to write a story set on the planet Mars. Mm. It enables me to set a story in ancient Greece or in the jungle in Brazil. And I don't think I would risk that if I knew I was going to be writing 100,000 words. Mm. It's very interesting. You've given an idea there, just with the three that you mentioned, you know, the scope that you can have with short stories. There's a lot of range in the Pier Falls. This is a very difficult question to answer, probably, but I just wondered whether any of those babies of yours were particularly close to your heart, whether you had a favourite story or one that really helps sort of define the collection, where you felt like you'd really got it right. My favourite story, I think, is the longest, called Wadwo. It might not be obvious when you first read it, but it's, it's an adaptation of the story of Gawain and the Green Knight, which I've always loved. And I guess for about 20 years, I wanted to do a modernised version and never quite worked out how to do it. Um, the penultimate version was going to be a play. Mm. Um, and I thought it would work fantastically on stage. It's certainly been an opera. Harrison Burtwistle wrote an opera based on it. But my, um, my wishes were scuppered in Starbucks in um, Copenhagen Airport, where I was describing my idea for the play to Simon Stevens, the fantastic playwright who adapted Curious for the stage. He listened briefly and he said, Mark, that's not going to work. <laughs> he said, it's a story about something happening to someone. And he's absolutely right. In fiction, you can have a thousand pages in which something happens to our protagonist. Think of Proust, think of Mansfield Park. Mm. On stage... Every scene has to involve characters trying to make something happen. You cannot write a play about something happening to someone. I had an operatic huff after realising that. I knew how much effort I'd pointed in the wrong direction. But I went home and started writing as a short story, and it somehow fell into place. It also has a scene of great violence quite near the beginning. If you know Gawain in the Green Knight, you'll know there has to be a scene of great violence in it, or it wouldn't be that story. It happens in a house not unlike the house in which I grew up, in a village which is not unlike the village in which I grew up. And there is a slightly evil pleasure, as there was with the Pier Falls, the title story itself, in going back to your childhood, and instead of reverentially celebrating it, just stamping all over it in hobnail boots. Mm. And I discovered, actually, I just, that, was, that was the discovery that enabled me to write the title story as well. The realisation that on paper, the act of utterly destroying something requires precisely the same loving attention to detail as the act of remembering it. Mm. Um, except that you don't have to be quite so high-minded about it. 
And then you can you can go about it with a kind of glee and a kind of abandon. But you can pay homage to certain memories, to places, to people. With exactly the same level of respect, even though you happen to be destroying them. Mm. It brings us back to Wells Tower, that title, Everything Ravaged, Everything Burned. That's what you've been doing to your to your childhood memories. My wife read this, well, my wife has read this collection at many stages, and at one point she says, I think the title should be Everyone Dies. <laughs> <laughs> although, <laughs> although I should point out that everyone doesn't, in fact, die. There, there are at least two stories with a, with a zero death count. There you go. It's for, for readers to try and find those stories yes. within the collection. Mark, thank you so much for chatting to us about it. It's fascinating. You're very welcome. Thank you.